At the 1924 Olympics, pastor, sprinter, missionary Eric Liddell took home gold in the 400-meter sprint. You might be familiar with him or his story from the great movie Chariots of Fire. And the story goes something like this, that Liddell was a pastor, he was a missionary, and he was slated to be the front runner to win the 100-meter sprint that year at the Olympics. But as he got to the Olympics, he found out that his race was actually going to be happening on a Sunday, a day in which he had reserved to serve the Lord. And so he made the decision to not run and instead make a swap to race, not in the 100, but in the 400 meter sprint. Now, it doesn't seem like that big of a difference, right? What's 300 meters? Is it really that big of a deal? But as we've been kind of watching the Olympics, you know that going from one event to another can make all the difference monumental, that someone who is world-class in the short distance might not be world-class in the long distance. But yet again, He held to his convictions, made the switch, and still took home gold in the 400 meter. Now, to this day, some hail Eric Liddell as a hero. But in this time, in this moment, a lot of his own countrymen called him a fool. They called him rubbish because he had given up potentially the chance to bring home a gold for his country. After that event had happened and he's standing uh, or took his steps off the podium in an interview, they said, well, what does it feel like to be able to run so fast? And why did you make the decision in the first place? And here's the quote that he gave them. He said this, he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Obedience to God's will, though, is the secret of spiritual knowledge. It is not willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty. That's kind of where we're headed today as we continue in our series through the book of Hebrews. This idea that sometimes faith calls us to do hard things. That just because we are living a life of faith doesn't mean life is always going to be straight, easy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be on the straight and arrow like we would assume it to be. I want to welcome all of you to First this morning, whether you're in Champaign-Urbana, joining us online. We're all getting the same message here this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we turn there and get ready to continue our series, we are in week eight of going through our study of the book of Hebrews. Last week, we kind of gave you this idea, starting to talk about faith, that faith is more about our obedience and trust to Jesus, to following God's will for our life than it is the outcomes. That sometimes we need to to think that, 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 that faith is more living out that trust than waiting to trust God to see if he's gonna come through in the first place. And in some way, the book of Hebrews has been building to this point, all the talk about the law and the sacrifices and blood and high priests, all of it's getting these Jewish Christians to this point to say, okay, now you have faith in Jesus. Not your past, not your good works, not your traditions, not your rituals, the things you have felt drifted back to to find comfort or ease. He said, no, no, forget all that Jesus is who you have faith in and this is what it ought to look like. And he gets to this point in which he's kind of saying to us that we all need to have faith because there is a race marked out in front of us that we are called to run well. That our life in our faith is a race that we are called to run, but to run it well with the power of Jesus. 
A Bible study tip to kind of think of our text today, chapter 12, is that verses one through three kind of give us the foundation and the verses four through 29 kind of give us the, the, the fleshing out of how to live this life of faith, how to run well the race of faith. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse one, follow along with me. It says this, it says, therefore, because of the hall of faith, because of those great people who went before us, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here, the, uh, the author of Hebrews is kind of making a metaphor talking about the Olympics, and he's kind of using this, this idea of running the marathon to win the prize. Now, in the ancient Middle East and in the Greco-Roman culture, winning the marathon was a big deal. Not so much because you won, but because of what came with it. You see, back in that culture, back in that society, the only way to have become known or famous was one of two reasons. Number one, that you were somehow this God-gifted soldier and had this prowess of strength and might and force, or because you were born into a royal family. And the only other way in which you became somewhat famous, known throughout all of the land, was by winning the Olympics. By winning the race, receiving that laurel crown that would sit on your head, which would give you a seat at the palace, at the feast. You would sit next to the kings and the queens. And so this status of winning that everyone in some way wants to be known, everyone in some way wants to be recognized, and in some ways everybody wants to be seen and heard and understood, the author of Hebrews is, is pulling on this metaphor for faith, that faith is like running that race, to be recognized for a great accomplishment, that at some point you also get to sit next to the king of the universe, right next to his throne. You notice he says, we are called to run this race. He doesn't say we're called to walk it. He doesn't say, say we're called to kind of stroll or meander or make our way. He certainly says we're not called to stumble. We are called to run. And in these first three verses, we see three things that make for a good runner. Number one, he talks about the witnesses. Number two, he talks about discipline. And number three, fixing our eyes. So let's unpack those for a moment. What does it mean to run well the race of faith? Number one, he says, you have a great cloud of witnesses that surround you. Again, he's referring back to Hebrews chapter 11. If you missed the message last week, you go back and read it. But Hebrews chapter 11, it goes through all of these patriarchs. You, have, you, had, uh, you had Moses and you had Abraham and Noah and Rahab. You had all of these heralds of faith and they are your crowd of witnesses. Now think for a moment, if you were an Olympic athlete, okay, and you're getting ready to dive into the pool, or you're getting loose and limber for that floor exercise, or your feet are in the chocks getting ready for that starting line at the race, and everyone in the crowd is there to do what? To watch you, to fix their eyes on you, but more importantly, to root for you, to cheer for you, 
that you in some ways might represent them, that you are running because you are the chosen one before them. Man, wouldn't that just like get you so excited? Like, like people like you, thousands of people are just cheering you on. You can do it. Run your heart out. Swim as fast as you can. They are rooting for you. They are not booing you. They're not. And see, as a body of believers, as Christians, as the church, that is our job. That is our role, is to root for one another. As we each run the race of faith, we don't boo each other. We don't discourage one another. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up of others. We are called to root for one another. And there is one person who roots for you more than anyone else. And that's Jesus. Look at the ways in which Jesus has already rooted for you. In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse four. It says, so in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus did on your behalf. Verse 12 puts it this way. It says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees with the power of the spirit. In verses 22 through 24, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, our covenant, your covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's the key, is that Jesus did the hard things so that he could root for you. Jesus did the hard things so he could root for you. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, bore the weight and the debt of our sin and our shame, so that when he rose from the grave three days later, that anyone who believes may have eternal life. Here's the other thing, is Jesus is not trying to trip you up. He's not trying to catch you in a bad spot. He's not trying to kind of hold your hand against the fire and say, you better, you better do better or else. No, no, no. You see, sometimes I think, don't we think about it like, like there's like this karmic Christianity Like in our teaching team this week, one of our staff members brought it up that sometimes don't we think of our faith as like this karmic Christianity, that we're good with Jesus as long as we're being good Christian boys and girls. But if we're doing bad things or wrong things or we're still struggling with sin or we're still being bitter or angry or we're gossiping or whatever it is, then then we're on the bad side and Jesus is gonna heap bad things on us. See, the thing is, is Jesus's love for us doesn't change. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we're currently doing or what you will do in the future, Jesus' love for us does not change. There's no such thing as a karmic Christianity. Why? Because Jesus, he already took care of it. He already took care of the bad stuff. And when he looked at his disciples, he said, you wanna follow me? All you gotta do, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Why? Because Jesus is rooting for you. Let me say that again. Jesus is rooting for you. He's not hunting you down. He's not trying to get you to stumble. He is rooting for you. He is rooting for me. He is rooting for us. By the power of his spirit, with the promises of God, he is saying, I am on your side. I am on your team. And I'm here to help you run well. 
The second thing that the author of Hebrews says is, is not just this crowd that's encouraging and rooting for you. You also need to throw off everything that hinders. You see, in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, you would kind of walk around the city in a robe. But then uh, when it become race time, you would do one of two things. You would take off your outer robe to get into your athletic robe. Or in some, they would just take off the robe altogether and kind of run with nothing on so that there was nothing in the wind holding them back if you catch my drift. So it begs the question, this is talking about this idea of discipline in God's family. What does God's discipline look like? It can be one of two things. Is God's discipline can either be a rebuke or out of line doing something wrong or God's discipline could be a reminder. God's discipline could be a punishment but it could also be for our development. But no matter what it is, if we want to run the race strong, here's what we need to know is that you can't spell endurance without discipline. We can't have a strong running faith. We can't finish the race unless we have endurance to follow God. That God's discipline may be a description of the direction of the work he wants to do in your life. That God's discipline may be a description of where he wants to work on our lives from the inside out. So what does that discipline potentially look like? Could look like a few different things. First and foremost, some discipline may be hindrances we need to throw off. Because that's what it says there in part of verse three, right? That, that we need to throw it off, the sin that so easily entangles us. Did you know that, that if you don't fight off sin, if you don't go to battle and wage war against the sin in your mind, the sin in your heart, the sin of your actions, that it's going to want to cling to you. It's going to want to hold on to you. That until we repent, until we confess, until we are accountable, and until we receive the grace of God to triumph over the sin of our life, it will stick to us and it will try to hold us back. You see, what sin wants to do is hold you back, wants to hold us all back from the promises and the purposes that God has in his life. You see, I've heard one way put it. It's like, it's like sin is kind of like a muzzle, like a muzzle that you put on a dog or, or the bit into a horse's mouth. That sin wants to keep silent God's truths over you, wants to silence the promises of God over your life but also wants to be able to control the direction of where you are going. Some discipline may be hindrances, reminders that we need to throw off sin in our life. Some discipline may be distractions, though, that we need to minimize. Here's what I mean by that. Is there are perhaps things in your life, because there's things certainly in my life that are good things, but every good thing in our life has the potential to become a God, but has the potential to become an idol. Things such as, I don't know, food, television, social media, politics, even to the point of things like family, our work, our habits, our busyness, our schedules. I think you and I both know that there are some small changes that we would all love to make, isn't there? A few years ago, there was an author by the name of James Clear. He, uh, he wrote uh, this book called Atomic Habits. And the whole summary of this entire book is that small choices can lead to big change. 
That if we can be disciplined in small things, 1% every day, every week, will eventually lead to big changes and drastic differences in our life. And how true is that in our faith, is it not? Because think about it, if we can't be disciplined in the small things of life, do we really think we can be disciplined in the big things? If we can't be disciplined in the things that, that really don't matter, are we actually going to be disciplined in the weighty things and the things that do matter in life? Like if we can't be disciplined to perhaps wake up to our alarm without hitting snooze 15 times, which trust me, I've been there. I got young kids. It happens. Do we really think we're going to be disciplined to pursue God every day in word and in prayer and bow before him? That if we can't be disciplined to turn off Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime after a couple hours instead of five hours, do we really think we're going to be disciplined to share our faith with the people who know it? If we can't be disciplined to just show up to church regularly, are we actually going to be disciplined to live out that life of generosity, to serve other people, to love our neighbor as ourselves? If we can't be disciplined in the small things, how do we expect to be disciplined in the big things? And that's part of what God is calling us to do. He's saying, I've given you good things, but don't let them replace me. I've given you these good things, but don't let them get in the way of pursuing a life of purpose with me. Some discipline may be distractions that we just simply need to minimize. The other disciplines might be this. Some discipline may be necessary to strengthen our stride. While there is some discipline that is perhaps a rebuke, there is other discipline that's like training and preparing. The discipline to strengthen us. Think about running and preparing for a race. What do you need to do? If you're preparing for a marathon, you don't just kind of show up on race day and say, well, I hope it works. I've got really good intentions. You should see these Nikes I got on. They're super comfy. They've got the name Pegasus in them. I think I'm going to run really fast. I don't know. No, no, like we need to put in the work beforehand to develop the discipline to have that endurance. I think about it. Let's, let's pretend you, you met a kid without discipline. There's probably one of two sources for that kid not having discipline. On one hand, it could be the kid who's just been completely spoiled his entire life. He's never heard the word no. He's gotten everything that he could want. His life is easy. His life is cushy. On the other side, you might say the kid who is undisciplined is because he's been ignored. And what both of those kids need is the same thing. They need someone who is present to provide for them loving correction, saying my heart for you, my desire for you, my goal for you is to grow up, to mature, to continue to take steps forward in this life. And the same goes with us in our faith, that we are disciplined because God loves us. As dearly beloved children adopted into the family of God through the grace of Jesus Christ, God disciplines us, not out of hate or anger or disgust, but out of love, because he knows that we need to grow and mature. Author of Hebrews puts it this way, picking up in verses 8 through 11. It says, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought Best, But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest, a bountifulness of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Here's the thing, is that if God is God, and he's not a genie for you, then it's not hard to understand and grasp the discipline he brings in our life. But if God is a genie to you, when that discipline comes, we're probably going to reject it. If God is a genie where you get three wishes, his goal is to make your life easy and comfortable and happy, that when discipline comes, that's when we push it back and we say, whoa, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the wish that I wanted. This isn't the God that I conjured up in my mind. If God is God and not genie, then it's not hard to understand that out of love, he will discipline us. But if God is genie, we will most certainly push him away when the discipline comes because we say, yeah, mm, that hurts a little bit. That stings. That might be hard. That's a little difficult. I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't feel qualified for that role. I certainly don't, 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 don't think I am the right person for that thing. I don't, I don't really, really know. But if God is God, when the discipline comes into our life, we know it is coming only from a source of love. Why? Because oftentimes the straight and narrow of faith is not straight like an arrow. The straight and narrow of faith is not often straight like an arrow. You see, faith has ups and downs, has twists and turns. And as Hebrews is, is kind of convicting us a little bit, isn't it? That a smooth and easy life may not be the good sign that we think it is. I had a good friend put it one way. He said, if Satan's not tempting you, then perhaps there's a chance he's not threatened by you. That if Satan's not trying to, to get a control of your mind or your heart or trying to trip you up, then perhaps he's not threatened by you. Because the one thing that Satan wants is not you. He wants to stop God's will in you. He wants to stop the kingdom of God from expanding. He wants people to be held under the bondage of sin and darkness and evil. And if there's anything that he can do is to get us to think that when pain or hardship or discipline comes, well, God just must not love me and we walk the other way. But that's Satan trying to work his way into our hearts and into our minds. Sometimes we, we come away from scripture with these bad understandings that God's job is to make my life easier, or perfect, or better. That if my feelings are hurt or if a decision that was made that I didn't agree with, then, then I'm just kind of like, well, well, God must not have been followed or God is not, must be worthy. And, and other people say, no, 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 no. That discipline means that when hardship comes, we still can trust God and his love. The discipline means we're called to do hard things. Discipline means we live different lives than the world around us. Because the world around us lives in cancel culture, looking to write people off. That if anyone disagrees with you, you completely ignore them or treat them like trash. But what kingdom culture says is, no, we encourage. We root for one another. We, 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 we hug, we embrace those who spit on us. We, we love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't kick people while we're down. We do whatever we can to lift them up. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, it says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Make an effort, every effort to live at peace with who? Everyone. Not just those you agree with. 
Not just those you are friends with, not just those that you like, but everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Galatians chapter six, do not do, grow weary of doing good. First Timothy chapter two, see to it that the righteous live quiet lives, that living a disciplined life with the Father in heaven should be a different life than the rest of the world. People should take notice the way that we treat one another and that the way we pursue him. Because at the end of the day, what is Discipline. Discipline is a bridge, not a gap. Discipline is a bridge, not a gap. That God's discipline is the difference between who you are now and who he wants you to become. God's discipline is where you are now and the promises he wants to fulfill in your life. God's discipline is when you see this struggle and the peace that he gets to deliver from you. That God's discipline is who you are now to who he has this grand, awesome, majestic pleasure that he wants to give you in, his, in your life because of he and his goodness and his righteousness. Discipline is the bridge that takes us from who I am now to who God has already planned for you and I to become. And that leads us to our third point of how we run the life of faith is that we run with fixed eyes. Notice what we fix our eyes upon. It said we fix our eyes upon Jesus. We don't fix our eyes. We don't pay attention to to him running on my right. We don't pay attention to her running over there. We don't pay attention. We don't fix our eyes on who was finished in front of us. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And Jesus alone. It said we have a pioneer, the one who, who was the trailblazer, who marked it out for us. This is how you run. Step here, turn there, go that way. That he has justified us. He has made the race available. But it also says that fix your eyes on Jesus because he's not just the pioneer, the one who ran, but he is also the perfecter. He is your coach. He is your trainer. He is the one to strengthen you as you run. He is your sanctifier. So Jesus justifies you as the pioneer of faith, but he also sanctifies us as the author, the perfecter of our life and faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus His life is the example that we fix our eyes upon. It's not runners to the left. It's not runners to the right. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 even puts it this way. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. We fix our eyes on Jesus because followers of Jesus are faithful to the end by following Jesus. We're faithful by following Jesus and nothing else. Not what the world says. Not what a particular pastor says. And here, I just need you to understand this. Like, like if any point, a pastor on any stage at any church is starting to say, well, you need to follow Jesus by doing what I want, by doing what I have called you to do. And it doesn't align with the, the path of Jesus. If it's very much about them and not helping you follow Jesus, if they are not saying, no, no, you look to me so that I can point you to Jesus. Like, that's my job. My role is not to say, hey, you need to follow Eric. 
Eric's job is not to get as many Eric followers as his. Eric's job is to say, anyone who looks at me hopefully sees Jesus. And if you don't see Jesus, then you need to go find a pastor. You need to go find a preacher that points you to Jesus and Jesus alone. That followers of Jesus, we are faithful to the end by following Jesus. And that's it. Look at what the faithfulness of the end in mind gives to us in verses 28 and 29 in chapter 12. It says, so therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That when we have faith in the past, of God's goodness, grace, and mercy, and we have hope of what the future is to come. We have faith in the past of what God has done, and we have hope in what the future brings. You combine those together, and that gives us the strength to endure. You see, when life is unstable, it allows us to say, I will focus on where I've headed, not where I've been. That when life is unstable, I will focus on who Jesus calls me to be, not who the world says that I am. That when life is unstable, knowing I can trust the past of what Jesus has done for me and knowing the hope of what is to come, it gives me the strength to endure that when the, 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 the discipline comes, I know it is out of love from God. For the certainties of the kingdom of God will certainly be my hope when the uncertainties of life inevitably arise. That when the uncertainties of who's going to lead, when the uncertainties of what's going to happen to my job, when the uncertainties of busyness, when the uncertainties of sin and temptation, when the uncertainties of family, when the uncertainties of how you fill in the blank, whatever the uncertainty that you feel like you're caught in, just know this, that if your eyes are fixed on Jesus and you're running the race of faith with the author perfecter, the pioneer perfecter of our faith, guess what? You have the certainty that the kingdom of God is waiting for you at the end. And that is why we run, and that is why we pursue. Why? Because faith is a race we run to finish. Faith is not a race that we walk to finish. Faith is not a race we run to get to a certain mile marker. Faith is not a race to say, well, well, I got kind of far. I guess I could toss in the towel now. Faith is, faith is not a, a race that we run to say, well, at least I'm a little bit ahead of him. At least I'm a little bit faster than her. No, faith is a race we run to finish. And we don't slow down. We don't give up. We, we, can, we, we keep going more than anything else. Because your life is too valuable. Your purpose is too great. Your time is too short to be offended by small things, to be distracted by menial things, to be entangled by sin that the grace of Jesus has already overcome, to be put back and set back by things that Jesus has already given you victory and freedom for. Faith is a race that we run to finish. It's not a race that we run to find comfort. It's not a race that we run to find secure. It's not a race that we wait to say, well, I'm gonna wait until the path is clear and I know what the GPS coordinates are and I know I'm not gonna get off track and all the details are in place and then and only then I'll follow you. No, no. Faith is a race 
we run to finish. Because in faith, we either do one of three things. We either strive forward, running hard, knowing the spirit of Jesus lives in us. We dive down, we give up, we throw in the towel, and we just merely try to survive. Well, I just hope maybe I get to the end. And Jesus is saying, other Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. We run with all endurance because the discipline of God can impact our lives. And close with this thought this morning. How might we run knowing that Jesus is rooting for us? How might you run the life of faith knowing that Jesus is behind you, cheering you on, saying, you can do this, you've got this, I've shown you the way, follow in my footsteps. Yeah, go, 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 go. How might you run knowing that the discipline that is coming is there to help you endure, to strengthen that faith, not to trip you up? How might you run the race of faith to know that the finish line is not going to move, that the finish line is waiting for you, that the finish line is there to say, welcome to the kingdom of God, you made it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As we move to our time of response this morning, the last couple weeks, we talked about faith. What does faith mean? What does it look like? I don't know where you are in your faith. Everyone's at a different spot in that race and in that journey, but I know you have a next step to take. That's why we said our vision is to see 5,000 next steps of discipleship, next steps of faith. You can put it that way, sure. Because that's what we're here to do, to help each other follow, yeah, Jesus. Not help each other follow Eric, not help each other follow that person or that pastor or Aaron or Aaron or, or whoever. Help each other follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus are faithful to the end when we follow Jesus. But we were brought into this race by the pioneer. We are sustained in this race by the perfecter, the coach, the trainer, Jesus himself. Let's celebrate how Jesus has brought us into the life of faith this morning. The last night with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus held up the bread. He took it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup, he held up the wine. He said, this is my blood, shed for you. Take and drink. He said these words, do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for faith. Give us the strength to endure. Give us the wisdom, the courage, and the boldness to know that when your discipline comes, it is out of your love. Make us a church, a group of followers of you who run the race hard. That we run that race to bring you in you glory. Through that we pray. Amen.